0: Greetings Gothamites, Lane here. Welcome to Book 1, Episode 3 of Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose. Our current book is the novelization of the 1989 Batman, written by Craig Shaw Gardner. Today, we're discussing chapters 6, 7, and 8. Something that I forgot to bring up in Episode 2, I, I wanted to touch on something that Jeeds and I talked about in our first episode. He and I discussed the name Jack Napier, and I, I wasn't sure what the deal was with the surname napier jack is fine it's perfectly fine in fact it has a great connection with joker because they're both playing cards but why napier well if my batman trivia were a bit more on the money i would have realized that napier is a nod toward the uh, the actor who portrayed alfred pennyworth in the 1966 batman television series that actor's name being alan napier So that was a mea culpa. So let's dive into Chapter 6, Scene 1. Jack couldn't see much with the bandages. And he didn't feel like doing too much looking around this pigsty either. He'd done enough gazing out broken windows, read too much subliterate graffiti. He'd be glad to get out of here. This kind of hole was too low rent even for rats. Where is here exactly? Here is the workshop of a Dr. Davis, one of those chop-shop quacks who patches up criminals who need to stay hidden. Davis slowly removes the bandages, then steps back in horror at what he sees. Jack demands a mirror, and when he looks at his own reflection, the mirror slips from his hand. A low sob escapes him. Regaining a modicum of his composure, Dr. Davis hastily explains that the nerves have been completely severed, and with the proper reconstructive surgery... But by now, Jack's own initial shock has deteriorated into the beginnings of madness. My notes on that scene. Now, of course, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, to take all of this with a grain of salt. But it seems like this fall into madness, if indeed that's what it is, it seems a bit sudden. So far in this book, Jack hasn't really come off as insane at all. While he might have some sociopathic tendencies and he is... Probably very much a narcissist. His logic up till now has been sound. As for the the sudden shock of what he sees, back at the Axis Chemicals plant, even before he fell into the vat of acid, he he ran through some leaking chemicals that uh, that covered his face, and it was described that his face was on fire. In addition to that, when he shot at the Batman. The bullet ricocheted and came back to hit Jack in the face. Then you throw in the fact that he fell into a vat of acid. So surely a man as intelligent as Jack was, surely he would kind of brace himself for some degree of damage to have been done to his face. But perhaps his narcissism prevented him from considering that a real possibility. I don't know. And a quick side note before I go on. I recently learned about a podcast called The Arkham Sessions. One of the hosts is a clinical psychologist, and she, she actually worked with Gail Simone in creating Barbara Gordon's therapy sessions. In fact, this psychotherapist was written into the, uh, the comic as sort of a, a thank you from Gail Simone. I've only listened to three episodes so far, but I am absolutely hooked. If you have interests in Batman, the animated series especially, and the psychology of these characters, I highly recommend this podcast. I don't have a promo for it, which is why I'm kind of giving it a shout out here. Okay, getting back to Jack's reaction to his face. Is it really possible for the shock of his appearance to have changed him so profoundly, psychologically speaking, that I'm kind of struggling with? And if before this, if Jack had exhibited signs of psychosis before now, or if we had a sense that the chemicals absorbed into Jack's bloodstream and maybe affected his mind, and that could have actually been a, a really nice, uh, a nice way to 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 write in the change of character is that the chemicals got into his bloodstream. It's kind of a shame they didn't work with that, but anyway. It wouldn't feel so out of the blue to have a total change of character if one of these two things had happened. If he had shown signs of uh, psychosis before or if the chemicals had changed him uh, mentally as well as physically. Perhaps this will be addressed later on, but for right now, this change of character feels a little bit unearned. Now, I'm not at all blaming Mr. Gardner for this. This is a novelization of a movie, and as far as I understand novelizations, there's a certain scope that he as the author has to work with. As far as I know, while he can add some um, internal layering, you know, some, some peeks into the inner thoughts of characters, uh, some description of atmospheric conditions, smells, sounds, things, things of that nature, he can only work with what is seen in the movie so in this case, we got uh, Jack Napier falling into the acid, and then we got him getting his bandages removed and his transformation into the Joker. That's what, that's what Mr. Gardner has to work with. He can't create a whole new scene that would connect some of the dots between now, then and now. I'm also quite curious how much time has passed. There was mention of him being tired of looking out windows and reading subliterate graffiti, so I'm really curious how much time has passed between him getting dumped into the East River and, you know, getting plucked out somehow or climbing out under his own steam and finding this doctor. You know, I, I really wish we could know some of these details, but alas. Chapter 6, Scene 2 God, what a day. He was getting too old for this. He had thought the hot shower would help, but he was just too weary from all the phone calls, the legwork, the deals, and arguments. That was the problem when you lost your number two man. He had had to reshuffle the whole organization. Grissom feels it's too bad about Jack, but he should have known better than to step out of line. As he reflects on this, he hears the elevator open and someone sitting in one of the chairs in the next room, probably Alicia coming home from her daily shopping spree. Grissom calls out to her, but doesn't get an answer. He wraps a towel around himself and heads to the other room to greet his girlfriend. But instead of finding Alicia in her usual chair, he finds someone sitting at his desk. The figure is covered by a raincoat, a scarf, and an oversized top hat. Grissom demands to know who it is, and in shock, recognizes Jack's voice. He tries to play innocent, but Jack accuses him, correctly, as it were, of having set him up over a girl. With a gun pointed at his belly and his heart beating too fast, Grissom tries to appeal to Jack, but the reply is, Jack? Jack is dead, my friend. You can call me Joker. Removing the hat and coat, Joker reveals his hideously grinning new face. Grissom lunges for the gun in the desk drawer, but Joker shoots him again and again, laughing all the while. My notes? Ugh, a daily shopping spree. That sounds exhausting, both physically and financially. Point number two, again, this is a novelization, so he's limited in what he can write about, but I would like to have seen more detail of events leading up to this encounter. Did Joker go back to Jack's home? Is that where he got the clothes? Little details like that. I'm just curious. Chapter six, scene three. If you'll remember in the last episode, this is, uh, this is picking up after Vicki Vale got drunk at Bruce Wayne's house. I'm sure he offered her a safe place to sleep in one of the mansion's many guest rooms, right? Right. Right. Okay. Let's see what happened. Bruce Wayne couldn't sleep. He had gotten himself involved at the worst possible time. He looked over at the woman who slept beside him in the king-size bed. She was a remarkable woman, witty, intelligent, and very beautiful. Her hair cascaded across the pillow. It seemed to glow in the moonlight. Her eyes closed, mouth open ever so slightly in sleep. She looked very peaceful, even innocent. Sleep brings out the child in all of us, he thought. She looked like a painting by one of the Pre-Raphaelites, even more beautiful in the moonlight than she had been in the glow of the setting sun. Bruce wonders why Vicky Vale has come into his life now, as if to counteract all the hard work he has done. It's 4 a.m., and Bruce walks to the window to stare at the moon. My notes for this scene? <sighs> Bruce, Bruce, Bruce. Chapter 6, Scene 4 You ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? Too bad he didn't have the chance to say those words to Grissom. He had used up all of his bullets instead. Oh well, his life as the Joker had just begun. Joker sits in the dark penthouse. Grissom's body crumpled in the corner. He is pleased by the office's view overlooking Gotham City. A nearby edition of the Gotham Globe has the headline, Winged Freak Terrorizes Gotham's Gangland. Joker looks forward to having his own headlines soon. My notes... Joker doesn't want to look at Grissom's body and reflects that he'll need to get someone that he trusts to get rid of it. Funny, Joker never really struck me as the squeamish type. Is he coming off as squeamish to you guys? Or maybe it's just having a body crumpled in the corner throws off the office's feng shui. That's a possibility. Chapter 6, Scene 5 Was that man going to sleep forever? And why had he gotten out of bed to sleep on a sofa? Vicky was almost dressed, and all that Bruce had done was to roll over and mumble something incoherent. Bruce finally wakes up. Quite quickly, actually. Vale invites Bruce to lunch tomorrow with the promise of showing him some of her photographs. Bruce declines politely, saying he has an important meeting. Vale suggests, well, maybe later in the day. But Bruce says that he has to leave town for a few days. She replies, well... When you get back, she kisses him lightly on the cheek and then heads to the front door. Alfred is there waiting to open it for her. I think the interaction between Vale and Alfred, I think that little bit of dialogue deserves some reenactment. What do you say? Rest in peace, theater. is proud to present That Time Alfred the Butler Unwittingly Blew His Master's Cover Story. So nice to see you again, Miss Vale. Yeah, um, I guess I'll see you when you guys get back. Back, Mom? We're here for quite a while, I believe. Oh, uh, never mind. See you. Notes. Awkward! So first, in episode two, Alfred almost drops a tray of empty champagne glasses. Now... He's not quick enough to pick up on the possibility that Bruce told a falsehood for the sake of protecting all involved. Who is this imposter, and what has he done with the real Alfred? Chapter 6, Scene 6 This was the first time he'd been in Alicia's apartment in ever so long. The place hadn't improved in the meantime, but the Joker had an idea for a change or two. She'd come in already, but she hadn't noticed him. She was far too busy in the other room with her dress bags and packages. There, he could see her in the doorway. Joker calls, Honey! Which startles Alicia. He tries to start a conversation, but she faints dead away. My notes, eh, there's not much happening in this scene. I'm not really sure of its purpose, other than to maybe reinforce the fact that Joker's new face is hideous, it's a shock that he's alive to everybody, and that Alicia is a hopeless shopaholic. Chapter 6, Scene 7 This is the way it was supposed to be. All of Grissom's gang lords in one big room, and the Joker at the head of the conference table. Joker, who is wearing makeup and hair dye to hide his appearance, announces that until Grissom resurfaces, he would be acting president, and he proposes the Gotham City Anniversary Festival as a target. The other gang leaders mutter to one another. One questions... What's up with Joker's grin? And another, Rotelli, asks, What if they say no? Joker says that no one wants a war, and they can just shake on it. Rotelli is a bit surprised, but accepts the offer to shake his hand. But he receives 40,000 volts from a joy buzzer hidden in Joker's hand. As Rotelli falls back, dead in the chair, Joker's thugs, wearing brightly colored costumes and sporting weapons, burst into the room. Joker allows the other bosses to leave, but tells them to consider the proposal. He then pulls aside good old Bob and gives him a camera, and tells him to follow the reporter Knox to learn what he can about the Batman. After Bob has departed, Joker carries on a conversation with the corpse of Rutelli to decide what to do about the other gangsters. Notes. Now, this is starting to feel like the Joker. Death by Joy Buzzer. Classic. little bit of a side note. Is this the part of the movie where uh, Joker starts to wipe the flesh-colored makeup off of his face? I remember when I was a kid, I didn't quite understand what he was doing here. I thought he was rubbing white makeup onto his face, and I remember being a little bit disappointed that the white face wasn't his real face. But eventually I understood that, yes, he was wiping off the flesh-colored makeup and not wiping on white makeup. So my my twisted little child heart rejoiced once more. Okay, that wraps up Chapter 6. We'll have a quick promo break and then come back for Chapter 7.
1: Hi, this is Dirk. Hi, this is John. From Gotham TV Podcast, the longest-running podcast about the TV show Gotham. We're currently covering the final season of Gotham, Season 5, which began on the 3rd of January... Twenty nineteen. Yes, we'd love if you joined us. Pop on over to our website at Gotham TV to subscribe to the podcast where we'll be releasing an episode each week discussing each episode of the final season of Gotham.
0: Welcome back, folks. Let us dive into Chapter Seven, Scene One. It had to be in here somewhere. Warner, Watson, Waxman was the last folder in the drawer. Where was it? A pair of fingers tapped Vicky on the shoulder. She glanced around right at a manila folder with the title Wayne, Bruce. The file, a very thin one, is being held, of course, by Knox. Vale takes the folder and finds articles such as Bruce Wayne attends society fundraiser and Bruce Wayne gives to new orphanage. When Knox tells Vale that he is losing confidence in her for going out with the weirdo Bruce Wayne, Vale says that he has no evidence for his belief that Bruce, quote, Roller skates through the female population like a bulldozer, unquote. She demands more in-depth questions, such as who Bruce Wayne really is, which isn't in the file. Knox's reply, who cares? Discussion? I'm glad that Vale is calling Knox out a little bit on his possessive, jealous bullcrap. I mean, seriously, dude, get over it. It's not like the two of you had a long romantic background and you broke up, and now she's moving on to someone else, and that's hard, and that would be hard, and I would understand. You guys had just met. She's pretty. You lusted after her a little bit, flirted. It wasn't reciprocated. Move on. Okay, my next point, I get that they're journalists, and getting information is kind of their thing, but boy do I feel bad for Bruce for having these two gung-ho to dig up anything they can find on him. I feel like they are really invading his right to privacy, but perhaps that's a 21st century concept, I don't know. It just seems a little bit too much. Chapter 7, Scene 2 She would wait forever if she had to. She had parked a block away from Wayne Manor. Sooner or later, something would happen. She had that same feeling she had gotten sometimes, taking pictures in Corto Maltese. Just before all hell broke loose. Now that Vale has had a chance to think on it, she realizes just how strange it is for there to be so little information on Bruce Wayne. At first, she thought maybe some files had been mishandled and lost. But after following up on some other avenues, those came up empty as well. And none of them had any photos or video footage of Bruce. She begins to wonder if maybe Knox is right about Bruce being a little strange. So now, like Knox, Vale feels the need to dig deep into Bruce's private life. She sees someone in dark glasses and a long black overcoat, leaving the perimeter of the gate around Wayne Manor. Vale uses her telephoto lens to identify the person, who turns out to be Bruce Wayne himself. Quote, Dressed very much unlike a millionaire playboy, he paused to put on a pair of sunglasses, then walked toward the heart of the city. Just another working man with a long and narrow package under his arm. Unquote. Vale exits her vehicle and tails him. My notes on this scene. Um, this behavior is a little creepy, Vicky. You're a journalist, yes, but you specifically stated that the reason you're in Gotham City is for the giant bat story. You're flat out stalking Bruce Wayne, hun. I'm just saying. Also, I've never thought about Bruce Wayne being within the Gotham city limits. I picture it being a... Wait a minute. In a previous chapter, Vicki and Bruce Wayne went horseback riding, and she reflects on the fields and large stable. How is Wayne Manor contained within city blocks so that she can park a block away and within walking distance of other places in the city so that Vicki doesn't look 100% conspicuous following Bruce? So yeah, I'm having a little trouble envisioning how the estate fits within the city. I've always been the type to prefer the estate being a little bit distant. Kind of like Bruce Wayne himself. Ooh, see how I went for the deep symbolism there? Yeah. On a little tangent, in some representations such as uh, Batman v Superman and the Justice League, Gotham City and Metropolis are just across the bay from one another. I hate that idea. If nothing else, then for the fact that Superman would be able to patrol both Metropolis and Gotham City with ease. It feels like this specific area of the country has more than its fair share of superheroes. You know, some cities might be getting walloped by bad guys, and they're like, what about over there? They have Superman and Batman. That's not fair. I agree. It's not fair. I always feel Gotham City is a pseudo New York City. You know, after all, New York's nickname is Gotham City and Metropolis being something more of a Chicago or something like that. Some people say that they think Metropolis is more of a Los Angeles. I can see why, um, but I always feel like it's more Midwestern, perhaps a connection with Clark Kent's Kansan roots. Either way, I would much prefer Metropolis to be a pseudo Los Angeles over being right next door to Gotham City. So in short, Wayne Manor not within Gotham City limits. Gotham City, not within a stone's throw of metropolis. Chapter 7, Scene 3 She had been following him for half an hour. A ten-minute walk, and they had gone from the swank area around Wayne Manor to middle-class houses with tiny lawns, double and triple deckers, then larger and larger apartment buildings. Another ten minutes, and the neighborhood had really started to deteriorate. Some of the buildings here were deserted and there were broken windows everywhere. Trash was piled in empty lots and on street corners. She had never thought before about how close Wayne Manor was to this part of town. It was one of the things about living in a big city. You might be living on Easy Street, but poverty was just around the corner. As Vale continues to follow about three-quarters of a block behind, some locals begin catcalling her. Worried about the possible theft of her camera, she makes an attempt to conceal it as she continues walking. Thankfully, though, the catcalls haven't caught Bruce's attention. He continues to walk, unaware. Suddenly, he turns into an alleyway. Vale hurries to the mouth of the alley so that she doesn't lose sight of him. They're close to 7th Avenue, she realizes, not far from the center of town. She starts to turn into the alley, but steps again behind the corner. The alley is a dead end, and Bruce is just standing there, staring at the walls. After a moment, he unwraps the package he has been carrying. With the help of her telephoto lens, Vale sees that the items inside the package are two long-stemmed roses. Bruce kneels, hand over his eyes, and, quote, placed the two roses side by side on the dirt and broken asphalt, almost as if he was making an offering to a shrine, unquote. When Bruce rises and turns to leave the alley, Vale ducks behind a dumpster. She resumes tailing him. Bruce makes his way past the mime and then comes to a crowd on the steps of City Hall. A gang lord by the name of Ricorso is there with a couple of bodyguards and a lawyer. The crowd consists mostly of reporters including Allie Knox. Vale glances back to where she last saw Bruce, but he is gone. The reporters are asking Ricorso about Grissom having given him all of his businesses. They looks around again for Bruce, but sees only more street mimes. There seem to be a lot of them. The reporters continue to press about the legitimacy of the change of ownership of Grissom businesses. When one of the mimes says, quote, "I saw it all. He raised his dead hand and signed the paper in his own blood, and he did it with this pin." Unquote. The mime pulls a four-foot-long quill pin out of his suit removes his top hat, revealing <gasps> green hair, and after a cry of, "'Time to pay the check!' he hurls the pin at Recorso. The steel tip slices the man's throat. The crowd scatters in panic as the other mimes pull machine guns from the bags they carry. Vale and Knox take cover behind a parked car, from where she can see Bruce Wayne standing in the middle of the chaos, still seemingly in his usual trance. They all yells for him to get down, but instead, Bruce, quote, began to walk, slowly at first, but with increasing speed with every step, toward the mime who had thrown the deadly quill, unquote. A car screeches to a halt near this green-haired mime, who climbs into the car and makes his escape. The other mimes follow suit. I usually read the opening paragraphs, but I'm actually going to also read the closing paragraphs in this one. Vicky ran from her hiding place, "'Bruce?' she called. At first, he still didn't seem to hear her. She ran closer. He turned at last. Sweat was pouring from his face. His eyes were two deep hollows, as if he hadn't slept for a month. But it was what was in those eyes that startled her the most. A look of sorrow and fear, like a small boy who had lost everything he ever had. "'I'm sorry, Vicky,' he whispered. He turned and ran into the crowd. "'Bruce!' she called again but he was gone now for my notes i had completely and utterly forgotten all about this scene until i read it here so i'm getting more and more anxious to watch the movie with geege i cannot wait i also feel quite bad for bruce being spied upon in a private emotional moment initially i thought surely he must know that she's following him i mean he's batman but perhaps he really is too distracted by his grief and lost in his thoughts that he doesn't realize that she's there after all. I think it's a little funny that it's such a shock that Joker has green hair. I suppose in those days, whether it's, you know, pseudo 1930s, 40s, 50s, or even 1989, it was very unusual to see green hair. I'm looking at it from the perspective of, 2019, where I see purple hair and green hair almost every day. Also, it was such a Bruce Wayne slash Batman moment for him to have been standing tall in the middle of this madness and start striding toward the Joker. It kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, the beginning of Batman v Superman when Ben Affleck as Bruce Wayne was running toward the cause of the chaos while all the other people were, were running away in the other direction. It's just such a Bruce Wayne thing to do. But what feels a little off is, okay, so I feel like Bruce is a master at compartmentalizing. As soon as he senses danger, which it's not hard to sense danger when someone throws a pin at someone's neck and kills him. Uh, you don't need spidey senses for that. But anyway, as soon as he saw danger, I think he would have set aside his preoccupation with his parents and focused entirely on the situation at hand. Perhaps he didn't want to reveal his alter ego. Perhaps he was in shock that he recognized Jack Napier and the Joker and he's trying to figure out how it is that he's not dead and perhaps feeling guilt that it was him who dropped him accidentally into the acid. And now that I think of it, perhaps that is indeed the reason why he looks so awful when he finally turns to look at Vicky. That wraps up Chapter 7. We'll have our second promo break, then come back for Chapter 8.
1: Alice, I... I want to start by saying... Sorry, someone cut me off. Anyway, I want to start by saying that this is not a story. It's a road trip. Which, same difference. In a good one, the start is exciting and the finish is satisfying and we end up somewhere else. Somewhere a long way from where we started. I don't know where this trip started. What counts as the first moment. But for lack of a better answer, I'll start with this. mourned you Alice I've never loved anyone so hard from my gut so screw you for that I mean really Isn't Dead, a new serial fiction podcast from the team behind Welcome to Night Vale. Written by Joseph Fink. Performed by Jessica Nicole.
0: Produced by Disparition. Every other Tuesday, starting March 8th. Welcome back, folks. Let us begin Chapter 8. Chapter 8, Scene 1. On the spot, action news. Mayor Borg and that new guy, Harvey Dent, both looked suitably uncomfortable. Oh, they were trying to hide it, but... The -the on-the-spot action news newswoman shoved a microphone in the mayor's face. Does this gang war dampen the city's plans for the 200th anniversary festival? The festival opens, the mayor blustered. The police will stop these gangsters. The same newswoman asks Harvey Dent about the theory of a mysterious Batman being a mob enforcer. We see no more of the coverage, for the television screen shatters under the impact of a giant boxing glove, the victim of Joker's rage. What kind of world is it when a man dressed as a bat gets his airtime? Joker retracts the mechanical boxing glove and tosses it onto the floor. He storms out of his newly refurbished lair, which we learn is within the newly remodeled Axis chemical. He asks a pair of his highly paid scientists, Have we shipped a million of these things? They confirm that they have. Joker, with Bob at his heels, enters a room whose walls are covered with images of war. On the table are stacks of folders from the FBI, CIA, and KGB. The one on top is labeled with an experimental nerve gas the results of a preliminary experimentation. Inside, pictures of dead soldiers, their lips drawn back in terrible grins. Bob has photos of his own to give to Joker, the result of his mission to follow Knox. Joker isn't too impressed with the image of Knox, but the photos of Vicky Vale make his heart go pitter-patter. As Bob tells him about Vale, Joker pulls a pair of scissors from his suit and begins to, quote, cut the babe's likeness out from all that interfering background, While he works, Bob informs him that Vale has been dating a guy named Wayne. Joker next uses crowns, coloring the border. Then comes the rubber cement, and her image finds a place of honor on his wall. Joker announces that he's going to get himself a new girl. In the mood to make mayhem, he picks up the phone and dials a number. End scene. Interesting that he's using Axis Chemical as his new hideout and workspace. It sort of makes sense, since uh, that's where he as the Joker was made. I suppose it could have gone one of two ways. Either he would detest the place, or as we can see here, it gains a sense of, of importance, of, of symbolism for him. And now that I've read it, I remember the part in the movie where he comes across Vicky Vale's image and becomes obsessed. I'd forgotten it until now. However, I don't remember who he's calling or what the million things are that they're preparing, so I'm learning or relearning all of this as we go. Next scene, chapter 8, scene 2. He had had to go home. There was nothing else he could do. Alfred looked up from his dusting as Bruce entered the study. The butler walked toward Bruce in that quick and almost effortless way he had. He took Bruce's coach and then, from somewhere, handed Bruce a hot towel. Bruce had given up wondering years ago how Alfred produced these things. Instead, he wiped his hands. Alfred tells Bruce that Vicky Vale called. She was concerned. And that the atmosphere of Wayne Manor is a little less gloomy when she's around. Bruce replies, Oh, if that's the case, why doesn't Alfred marry her? Bruce informs Alfred that Napier is alive and is leading Grissom's men. He needs to see what information the police have on Napier. Both Bruce and Alfred are a bit saddened by the reminder that there's no room for love in Bruce's life. End scene. My notes. I guess I don't really want to know where Alfred keeps his towels and how he keeps them warm either. Hmm. Next scene. Chapter 8, scene 3. Vicky looked at the photos she had taken of Bruce Wayne. When Bruce had disappeared after this, she had stayed behind for a moment to take pictures of the carnage in Gotham City Square. That was her job, after all. But she had developed the role of film herself, and kept those shots at the beginning that she had taken of Bruce and the Roses, hoping that somewhere in these black-and-white images there might be an answer. Vale studies the photos, trying to make connections between Bruce and the green-haired mime, whose name she now knows to be the Joker. Curious about the alleyway, Vale calls Knox... Quote, Allie, I want you to check something for me, okay? Find out what's so special about the alley at Pearl and Phillip Streets. Bye. She hangs up and continues to stare at the photos of Bruce Wayne. In scene, end chapter. My notes... <sighs> I'm kind of waiting for her to start collaring on the photos with crayons, too. If she can obsess, I suppose the Joker gets a pass, too. This mirroring of actions is interesting, but... One is portrayed as sick and twisted and childish, while the other one has a sense of d- dignity and mystery. I don't know, they're both a little bit creepy. And it dawned on me, while I was taking down my notes, the problem that I'm having with Veil. Vale, the Bechtel test. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Bechdel-Wallace test is used to measure how women are represented in a work of fiction. According to Wikipedia, because I'm not going to go any deeper here regarding research... It asks whether a work features at least two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. Well, Batman so far only has one woman, so it already fails that portion of the test. But whenever the scene is on her, she is constantly thinking about Bruce Wayne. She has potential to be a very interesting character, and at first, she really was. But ever since she met Bruce, her depth of character has gone away. Batman made her flat, man. (laughs) No, I'm not going to apologize for that. Where was I? So she's forever trying to figure out what's going on inside of Bruce's head. That sort of uses that old stereotype of woman saying to a man, What are you thinking? But so yeah, the the female representation here is not great. She came to Gotham City looking for Pulitzer Prize winning material in the Batman. But this has been completely derailed by her obsession with Bruce Wayne and finding out about him when there is zero reason for her to think that there's a connection between Bruce Wayne and Batman now Bruce is doing a lot of thinking about her too but he also interacts with Alfred takes down Napier at the chemical plant takes roses to the place where his parents died it never really specifies the color of the roses i'm i'm kind of assuming they're they're red since that seems to be the color represented in like the Arkham games and things like that so, not every waking moment is thinking about Vale. I am guess I'm getting frustrated with half of Vicky's dialogue and inner thoughts consisting of, What are you thinking, Bruce Wayne? Or some variation thereof. Now, come to think of it, that's also why I'm not as fond of Knox as I was before. The first time we saw him, he was being a snoopy journalist who was kind of likable. That went away as soon as he saw Vale's legs. He hasn't stopped fixating on her since. Why is the Bechtel wallace test a thing if men do this behavior too? Well, because there are loads of men in this book slash movie, and most of them do other things besides talk about women. That's where the representation is unequal. But the action of Vale and Knox are equal, both being eternally obsessed about another person. And it's equally off-putting. So I hope we see a little a little bit more character development of not only Vicki Vale, but also of Alexander Knox. With that little rant over, uh, we are finished with this chapter and with this episode. Next time we'll cover... Um, tell you what, let's just do chapter 9 and 10 for now. Thank you again for listening to Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose. I've been your host, Lane. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or feedback, you can reach me at darknightprose at gmail.com. Or at Twitter at batmanbooks underscore dkp. Happy reading! Batman is copyrighted to DC Comics and was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger.